0: Section 23 of Antonia. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Antonia by George Sand, translated by George Burnham Eve. Chapter 5, Part 5. Tormenting herself thus, she found herself quite near the pavilion, having no idea how she came there. The door was open. A black figure stood in the doorway. Julien, as if he had overheard her thoughts, as if he were irresistibly impelled to answer them, came straight to her side. Julie at once recovered her reason and her pride. Taken by surprise, she was about to speak in the character of an insulted queen. He did not give her time. "'Why are you here, madame?' he said. "'Can you not get in? Are your servants asleep, or are they all expecting you to come from the street?' You cannot pass the night in the garden dressed as you are. It's two o'clock, the dew is falling, you'll be frozen, you'll be ill, and your hood is over your shoulder, your head bare, your arms hardly covered. Here, take this heavy mantle of my mother's at once and forgive me for being here. But how did you know? I heard you walking on the gravel, a very light step which could be nobody's but yours, and constantly stopping and going on again. "'I was in the studio, then I came here and held the door ajar, saying to myself, "'She's still out of doors. She can't get in. She will take cold. She's tired. She's suffering. "'Perhaps she's afraid. I could not stand it any longer. Indeed, it was my duty. And this must not go on, you know. Whatever people may say or think, I do not propose that you shall kill yourself. "'No, I do not.' Julien was profoundly moved.' His voice trembled, and so did his hands, as he placed his mother's cloak over Julie's shoulders. But he did not struggle against the surprises of passion. He chided, rather, like a father who sees his child in danger. It did not occur to him that he could be accused of selfish love or of a treacherous exploit, so that he forgot all considerations of propriety. And there was in his solicitude a passionate intonation which overpowered Julie she grasped both his hands and carried away herself by an outburst of exalted passion the first in her life the least expected and the most unconquerable she exclaimed wildly you love me you love me i'm sure then tell me so that i may hear it and know it you love me as i want to be loved julien stifled a cry lost his head completely and carried julie into his studio but she had led so chaste a life that the alarm of her modesty inevitably caused her lover's respect momentarily submerged to rise again to the higher regions of his heart he fell at her feet and covered the tips of her ice-cold fingers with kisses imploring her to have perfect confidence in him Confidence, he exclaimed. Confidence! I have sworn that I would be your brother. It is your brother who's here beside you. Do not doubt it, and your confidence will save me. I told you that I adored you. That is truer than I can possibly tell you, stronger than you can dream, more terrible than I myself imagined. But I will not cause you to shed a tear. I would kill myself first. Have no fear. You shall never need to blush for having ordered me to love you. Could he have kept his word? He believed that he could, even at the height of his delirious joy. Julie increased his strength by her own boldness. "'No, I do not propose to blush,' she said with the frankness of a serious resolution. "'I propose to be your wife. "'For to be your mistress would degrade you. "'Commonplace love affairs are not becoming to a man like you. "'To a woman like me, dissolute conduct is impossible. "'I, too, would kill myself first. Julien, let us take our oath here and now, to marry whatever happens, whether I am rich or destitute, for there is as much chance of one as of the other. If I am poor, your determination will never weaken, you will sustain and support me. If I am rich, you will have no vain pride, you will share my destiny. This must be decided, agreed upon, sworn to. I am not brave, I warn you, That's why I insist upon pledging myself irrevocably, and then I know that I shall look neither to the right hand nor to the left. My love will become a duty. Then I shall be strong, resolute, and self-possessed. I was able to endure despair in marriage, because I have principles and true piety. With all the more reason I shall accept happiness, and I will struggle to be happy as I struggled formerly not to desire to be. Swear, my friend, we must be everything to each other, or we must never meet again. For this is certain, we love each other, and our love is stronger than we are. Society can have nothing to say. For a fortnight past, I've ceased to live. I felt that I was dying. Today I went mad. I should have run after you just now if you had said to me, I do not love you. Or no, I should have thrown myself into the basin with the moon and the star that shines in its depths. "'Julien, I'm losing my mind. "'I never said such things before. "'I did not think that I should ever dare to say them. "'But here I am, saying them, to you, "'and I'm not sure that it is myself who speaks. "'Have pity on me. "'Sustain me. "'Preserve my honour, which is yours. "'Preserve your wife's purity for your own sake.' "'Yes, my wife. "'Yes, I swear it,' cried Julien, in an ecstasy of joy. "'And do you too, Julie, swear it before God? "'Mon Dieu!' said julie bewildered and suddenly becoming a little cowardly we have known each other a month no not a month replied julien only an hour for we met a month ago for a quarter of an hour here a quarter of an hour at your house and this evening in the street for half an hour we may as well say julie that so far as appearances go we do not know each other at all and yet we love each other god above hears us and knows it well for it was he who wished it who still wishes it Yes, you are right, she replied excitedly, for she felt recreated by her lover's exalted faith. We know nothing of each other but our love. Is not that enough? Is not that everything? What is all the rest? You are a clever artist, an estimable young man, a good son. That is what everybody knows about you. But is it because of those things that I love you? I am a virtuous person, not ungenerous and of a gentle disposition, or so you may have heard but that is not what made you love me. There are other good men, other estimable women, to whom we should never have thought of becoming attached. We love each other because we love each other. That is the whole story. Yes, yes, said Julien, love is like God. It is because it is. It is the Alcahest. What does it matter that we discover in each other this or that peculiar development of mind or character? The great the only business of our lives, is to love. And since we possess each other's love, we have known each other a hundred years, forever. Our love has neither beginning nor end. They hyperbolized thus for more than an hour in the studio, talking in low tones, by the vague light of the moon shining through the trees. Julie seated, Julien on his knees, hand in hand, but refraining from the kiss which would have been their ruin. Suddenly, The moon, which was sinking toward the horizon, seemed to shine so brightly that they were forced to conclude that the dawn was lending its light. Julie rose and fled, after making Julien swear a hundred times that their union was indissoluble. Camille was greatly surprised when she opened the door for her mistress to find that it was nearly three o'clock. "'Are the servants still waiting for me?' inquired Madame d'Estrelle. "'Yes, madame. They think that madame has decided to pray all night by Monsieur le Marquis's body. "'The carriage went to fetch madame. "'Madame must have found it at the gate of the Hôtel d'Amonde.' "'No, I did not wait for it. It was too slow in coming. Monsieur Marcel Thierry brought me home by way of the pavilion, "'where I had to stop and talk business with him. "'Tell the servants to go to bed. "'The carriage will return when the coachman is sober.' "'Ah, mon Dieu! So madame knows. Poor Bastien!' I can take my oath, madame, that he got tipsy from vexation because madame had taken a cab. If this explanation made Julie smile, her own explanation seemed strange to the soubrette, but she suspected nothing wrong. Julie's life was so regular and so pure. Camille concluded simply that her financial position must be in great danger, since she passed the night talking with the solicitor, and she imparted her solicitude to the other servants, who were distressed by it, even while thinking that they must not allow their wages to go unpaid. The footman, who was a friend of Camille, and as such inclined to shield Bastien, went to the Hotel d'ormonde but did not find him there. Bastien had understood that his orders were to go back to the wine-shop, and thither he had gone. He was sleeping the sleep of the angels, the only slumber supposed to be delicious enough to be compared with that of a drunken man. The carriage was waiting for him at the door, and the groom, his subordinate, had consented to watch the horses on condition that he was supplied with something to warm him on the box every fifteen minutes. The rascals did not reappear at the hotel until daylight, and did not recover their senses for twenty-four hours. Under other circumstances, Julie would have dismissed them, but she foresaw that the Bacchanalian episode would introduce confusion into the accounts of the romantic episode, in the gossip of the servants' hall and the porter's lodge. That is what actually happened, and as the people in Madame d'Estrelle's service were not ill-disposed toward her, it seemed that nothing was likely to transpire of her actions during that extraordinary night. On the next night, as a matter of prudence, the lovers held aloof from each other, but on the night following that, though they had made no appointment, they found themselves once more among the shrubbery in the garden, and repeated with renewed delight all that they had said two days before they continued in this way undisturbed and without apparent danger nothing being easier than for madame d'estrel to steal out of her apartments even without very great precaution her people being accustomed to see her go out alone for a breath of fresh air at a late hour on summer nights what a delightful existence if it could have lasted those meetings had all the charm of mystery with no remorse to disturb their joys both perfectly free and aspiring only to the most sacred union, sustained by a love strong enough to be able to wait. They sat there in the darkness, amid bushes laden with flowers, in the splendor of the early summer which retains all the charm of spring. They were like two fiancés who are permitted to love each other and who, without abusing the permission, keep out of sight in order to arouse no jealousy. It was the honeymoon of sentiment preceding the honeymoon of passion, Passion was already awake, but they fought against it, or rather held it in reserve by mutual consent, for the time when they would be forced to fight and display their courage, for well they knew what they would have to face. And Julien said to his friend, You will suffer terribly for my sake, I know, and I shall suffer to see you suffer, but then we shall belong to each other, and love will afford us ineffable joys which will make us invulnerable to assaults from outside.' even if you were not guarded here by your own modesty and my veneration it seems to me that my selfish interests rightly understood would enjoin upon me not to exhaust all my happiness at once at other times julien was more agitated and less resigned to wait then julie would pacify him by imploring him to remember what he had said the day before i have been so happy since we have loved each other thus she would say to him let us not change this blissful condition of affairs Remember that on the day when I shall say to you aloud that I have chosen you for my life companion, people will laugh and cry out and accuse me of a vulgar infatuation. And I know virtuous women who will say to me cynically, Keep him for a lover, since you must have a lover, but see him in secret, and don't marry him. With what sort of a countenance could I endure such impertinences if my conscience were not clear? and if I no longer felt that I had the right to reply, no, he is not my lover, he is my fiancé, whom I love, and who has proven his respect for me as no other man could ever have proved it. Let us keep all our weapons, Julien. Truth is the most powerful of all weapons in the struggle against false ideas. Julien submitted because he was entirely devoted to her, and also because his spirit was loyal to that indefinable strain of heroism which had guided his life and restrained the first impulses of his youth. He was still able to conquer his passions, having never allowed them to dominate him entirely. Moreover, this romance of pure love, in the perfume-laden darkness, appealed to his imagination, and to the artist, those poetic nights were intoxicating festivals— That garden had dark recesses, and imposing masses of foliage, such as we see in Watteau's pictures. The appearance of Julie charmingly dressed, not over tall and of graceful outline in her simple gown, was in harmony with that distinctive savour which makes of Watteau a serious painter, a realistic and thoroughly alive Italian, amid conventional surroundings and in an age of affectation. There was a secluded nook where a tall white marble urn, standing high upon an ivy-wreathed pedestal, stood forth vaguely in the darkness like a spectre against the black background of the trees. Bluish, indistinguishable lights flitted over the foliage, and the shadows of the branches played about the marble, whose outlines constantly disappeared, although its shape was always graceful and majestic. Thither Julien repaired to wait for Julie as soon as his mother had gone to bed, and when she approached as smiling and tranquil as happiness itself, with her silk petticoats shimmering in the darkness, and her lovely bare arms holding up her skirts, Julien fancied that he was looking upon some modern muse who ruled his destiny, bringing him promises of future bliss with all the charms and fascinations of present real life. They must enjoy the present without giving too much thought to the morrow, for the uncertainty of future events made it impossible for them to form definite plans. They did not know yet whether they could live on thus, deserted by society, forgotten, and at peace in that garden which had become an earthly paradise for love, or whether, ejected from the pavilion by inexorable creditors, they would go to seek an attic chamber in some suburb, with a garden on the window sill. They proposed to face everything together. That was the only absolute certainty, the only irrevocable determination. End of chapter 5, section 23, read by Sandra, Montreal, 2021.